So I want to welcome listeners to the first episode of Coherence. My name is Amanda DiBattista. And I'm Andrew Mark. Next stop, York University Commons. Our thanks to Niche for funding this pilot series and Nature's Past for hosting us. Each episode will showcase thoughts from the York University Faculty of Environmental Studies describing the intersection of culture and environment. So welcome to the very first episode of Coherence, a podcast series that explores connections between culture, history, and the environment. In this series, we'll talk to experts in environmental studies about a range of environmental topics, including protest and resistance, food, art, literature and politics, and of course, the focus of our first episode, Melancholy and Morning. We want to start off by thanking Niche again for funding and hosting this podcast series. Sean Kairaj from Nature's Past podcast series has also been so kind and helpful, and we're lucky to collaborate with him. We also need to thank the Faculty of Environmental Studies, affectionately known as FES, for support of all kinds. We've received resources for recording equipment and access to some of the most interesting and highly regarded academics in the field of environmental studies. We're thankful for the enthusiasm of our colleagues in FES and are super excited to continue producing podcasts that use the faculty as a jumping off point. So Andrew, are you ready for our first podcast? Definitely. Not only is this our first episode, but we have so much recorded material that we've made it into a two-parter. This episode will focus on the history of thinking about melancholy and mourning and make links to environmental thought. It was FES professor and my supervisor, Peter Timmerman. Hi, I'm Peter Timmerman. That suggested that we start our series here. I had been talking with him about this student who was just so upset by a particular class. So you sat down with Peter and asked him why he thinks that melancholy and mourning are important concepts for environmental studies? Yeah, and he had lots to say. I think the most important thing is that melancholy is taken over as, a, as an important theme in a whole range of different disciplines. This includes uh, psychoanalysis, literary criticism, post-structuralism, queer ecology, fine art, a whole range of different areas. In light of how many disciplines these quite complicated concepts influence, we thought it might make sense to start with some history. I asked Peter to trace the story of melancholy and mourning so that we might start to understand what exactly he was talking about. The original history was that melancholy was one of the original four humorers in the ancient world. Black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood, or collar. And these were to be balanced off in the, in the ordinary person. And they became associated with different planets and astrological signs. So, for example, melancholy was associated with Saturn. So people who were Saturnine were melancholic. And it was also associated with, because it was hot, wet, dry, and cold, uh, melancholy was associated with the cold and the dry. So there's this ancient tradition of these four humors, which only really left in the 19th century, but we still talk about people who are choleric and Saturnine, at least. Some people talk like that. Apparently one of the original melancholic figures in Western cultures was the Greek titan Kronos, otherwise known as Saturn. Kronos was known for both devouring his children and as a figure of wisdom. 
Peter further explained the dualistic qualities of melancholy. In the Middle Ages, it was associated with two things. One of them was what was called acedia. This was a, a characteristic of monks who had been uh, alone too long. It was usually associated with noontime and that the monks were tired of themselves, tired of prayer, nothing was happening, um, and they just became despairing that they would ever amount to anything. And this was one of the great temptations to abandon your monastic practice. And melancholia was became more and more associated with the um, the genius, the person who is isolated and and um, uh, is artistic in some um, disaffected fashion. And in the Renaissance, it became very tightly associated with the the heroic melancholic. The, uh, the figure of whom Hamlet is the best example. My disposition that this goodly frame the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy the air, look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why it appears no other thing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. A figure who is uh, disaffected, disassociated from the world, doesn't know um, what to do, is haunted by possibilities of meaning which don't really exist anymore and who wanders around in graveyards looking at skulls. In action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Melancholy kind of moved through this sort of long historical period. And then <clears throat> it came into the kind of modern um, discussion through Freud. Since my supervisor, Kate Sandilands, had recently published a co-edited volume with Bruce Erickson called Queer Ecologies that featured her paper entitled Melancholy Nature's Queer Ecologies, we decided to ask her for some of her insights. My name is Kate Sandilands. I teach in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. I'm particularly interested in the ways in which how we think about our relationships to the natural world, our, cu our cultural uh, ecopolitics, have an often unacknowledged influence on our uh, environmental policy, uh, environmental politics. The way in which sort of social and cultural and literary conventions um, actually organize the way that we relate to the natural world rather than um, it being a completely rational process of empirical observation. I started by asking Kate to talk to us about Freud. He's the first person who ties mourning and melancholia together, um, whereas previously melancholia had been often thought of as sort of a, a, a condition, uh, as a life condition, as a way of being, as a, as a kind of person, as a, a humoral quality. For Freud, melancholy was actually a psychic response to certain loss events in the same manner as melancholia. So he actually kind of pathologized me melancholia. Um, he considered that, n that mourning was sort of a normal response uh, to loss. At least he did originally in his 1915 essay, Mourning, Mourning and Melancholia, he considered that mourning was sort of a normal response to loss in which you lose, you, you lose the object um, and then you eventually, uh, you are, you know, in a, in a healthy narrative, able to uh, reattach to another object. 
melancholia, on the other hand, um, for, for Freud, um, was uh, he contrasted it. Um, he contrasted it with melancholia be, uh, because the melancholic was sort of not quite able to get over the loss, uh, as if a piece of the a piece of the beloved, a, police, a piece of the lost object is, is like lodged lodged in your chest, or for Freud, lodged in your psychic structure, um, and the melancholic refuses to let that go. And uh, melancholia, again in the same article, was a situation where somehow the mourning didn't stop, where somehow the melancholic continues to mourn, is unable to stop mourning, and this is this was a puzzle to Freud. He couldn't work out why a melancholic couldn't get past the the uh, the mourning, and he kind of talked around it. He kind of thought maybe it had something to do with a deeper narcissistic wound or that some something like that. And in some way, the melancholic had, if you like, uh, incorporated the lost person or the lost thing into their being, and like a, a sort of lodged object, it wouldn't go away. It wouldn't it wouldn't let go. One couldn't let go of it. And um, he simultaneously, just about then, uh, found himself in the middle of World War I, and he wrote uh, an article on transience where he, he, with his friends, was walking down a country lane, and um, they started talking about how they couldn't really be um, uh, committed to the natural world they saw around him because of, his transient, because of its transience. And Freud kind of connected that to um, both the mourning and melancholia, but also the shadow of the First World War, which was around him. And he kind of went on with this thinking uh, through the end of the First World War. And then something terrible happened to him, which was that he lost his beloved daughter. And this changed his way of thinking about mourning and melancholia, as real loss does to people, where he suddenly discovered that, um, for some mysterious reason, he was unable to get over the loss of his daughter. And so he himself had turned into a melancholic. And he, he writes a letter to one of his colleagues saying, um, this is extraordinary. I'm, you know, one is unable to, to um, give up this person, and perhaps this is a good thing. It's not a, it's not a good thing to give them up. One should kind of uh, keep them with one in some fashion. This got wrapped up with his rethinking of his whole structure of the conscious and the unconscious. And in 1923, he wrote an article called "The Ego and the Id." And in the ego and the id, he starts talking about how the ego, ourselves, our conscious selves at least, is actually made up of all the losses that we have had in our in our infancy and childhood. We've had to lose our primordial connection to our mother. We've had to lose our connections to um, uh, all of the objects and the things that are around us that were part of a kind of uh, more emotionally originary view, and that. The selves that we have are in themselves a kind of uh, a residue of all of this um, mourning, if you like. And so we have, we kind of carry around with us a melancholic self because that's the selves that we have. And this in itself became very interesting and it was picked up at the end of the 1980s, particularly by Judith Butler, but also by people who are working in Lacanian psychoanalysis like uh, French psychoanalysis, Julie Kristeva, people started talking about this question about how the nature of the self was organized and, and what, what was happening in infancy when we had to deal with these losses or created these losses. And very controversial interpretations of what was going on in, in Freud.
Freudian analysis and, and issues of what it was that we lost when we lost the things that we lost originally. And this is the kind of work that um, Kate Sanderlins and others have been working on in their work on queer ecologies and uh, other issues. Butler actually argues that in Freud's later work, in the, in the Ego and the Id, she argues that Freud eventually gets to the point of not, you know, sort of pathologizing melancholy as an incomplete, uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a perverted form of mourning and venerating mourning as the normal response. She actually goes on to argue that, uh, uh, she argues that he argues that melancholy is simply part of the process of mourning, so that you really do need to incorporate the object into yourself um, and, um, you know, sort of in, incorporate the, 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 uh, the attachment to the object as part of your psychic structure, leaving the mark of the leaving the mark of the beloved in your ego identification, uh, before you can let it go. So you need to you need to figure out what piece you're going to keep as part of yourself, and in some way acknowledge how your loss has constituted you before you can actually let the object go. And, and continue on in sort of a nice, in a sort of normal, uh, quote, normal, unquote, kind of process. But the, the, the thing that I like about Butler's extension of Freud is that she argues that in certain kinds of, in, 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 um, Loss has a social context, and mourning has a social context. And one of the important uh, considerations is that we, as a society, find certain objects, what you would call grievable. Um, we are allowed and allowed to mourn certain kinds of losses. We are uh, there are rituals to support that. Um, there are conditions in which we are allowed and encouraged to experience a loss as a loss. So, um, uh, well, let me let, let me give you actually a very personal a very personal example. You can edit it out if you want to. Last year in 2010. Um, I went through two very profound losses in rapid succession. Uh, the first was that I separated from my spouse. It was a same-sex relationship. Um, and the second is that my mother died. Um, and I got all kinds of support for my mother's death. Um, there were all kinds of rituals involved. There was, you know, obviously there was a funeral. Um, I received dozens of calls and uh, uh, emails and uh, cards uh, and condolences um, over my mother's loss, and only a very, very, very few people, my, my sort of my closest friends, acknowledged that the loss of my of my spouse was also absolutely enormous. Um, there were no rituals. Um, so I feel like I have been allowed or, or encouraged to uh, figure out um, my relationship with my mother and to let and to let her go. Um, but I have not been encouraged to figure out, you know, sort of the nature of the loss of my uh, the loss of my partner and to let her go. So. Uh, um, perhaps, uh, and th this is kind of Judith Butler's point, 
Um, you know, it's not just a personal example. She argues that in a society in which uh, homosexual attachments are not considered legitimate in the first place, uh, it's not just that we have no rituals surrounding uh, their loss. It's that we declare that they're really ungrievable losses. They weren't really there in the first place, so how can we possibly acknowledge that they were, that they were losses? And she argues that these are the sorts of, uh, that the ungrievable things, the things that we don't really acknowledge were so important in the first place, so constitutive of ourselves in the first place, these are the things that give rise to melancholic attachments. Um, because we do not have um, the ability to uh, give, Kristeva uh, would say, give language. Um, you, know, you, you have to be able to give language to the loss before you can actually let it go. Um, and this is the sort of stuff that you want to talk to Susan about. So, of course, we did. I packed up our gear and my three-month-old son, which you'll hear in the background, so I'm really sorry. Uh, and we met Susan in her office in downtown Toronto. Okay, well, um, my name is Susan Moore, and I'm um, part-time faculty in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University, and I teach um, in the area of literature and culture and the environment. Um, I'm also a candidate training to be a psychoanalyst at the Toronto Psychoanalytical Institute, and I have a part-time psychotherapy practice. When I asked Susan to talk about Kristeva's idea that melancholy results from the inability to put loss into words, into language, she started with a quote. Quote, Successful mourning involves a complex process of negation, where the loss is accepted in the form of signs. The beginning of language lies in an awareness of and a negation of loss. Signs are arbitrary because language starts with the negation of loss along with the depression occasioned by mourning. I have lost an essential object that happens to be in the final analysis my mother is what the speaking being seems to be saying. But no, I have found her again in signs, or rather, because I consent to lose her, I have not lost her. That is the negation. I can recover her in language. A person's relationship to the lost object, to the good friend who has passed away, the beloved dog, a childhood home, is key to understanding the difference between melancholy and mourning. The problem is a melancholia not only do we not accept the loss, what we have lost is unconscious. In normal mourning, we know what we have lost. It's external in the world. Maybe someone we have loved has died and we're mourning. In melancholia, the subject doesn't know what they've lost. It's unconscious. Okay, so it's more complicated in terms of trying to get access to that relation. When I asked Susan to expand on what Kate and Peter had been telling us about Freud's understanding of the role of the lost object in melancholy, she explained that Freud basically thought about the psyche as three parts. The id, or basic human drives. The ego, which is the rational and organized part of the psyche that mediates the relationship between the id and reality. And the superego, the part of the psyche concerned with morals, ideals, and judgments. It is the ego's relationship to a lost object, she told me, that is the basis for melancholic attachment. 
In mourning, the ego is able to give language to a lost object and then to let it go. In melancholia, Susan told me, this relationship is very different. Instead, what happens is the ego attaches to the lost object. So the lost object, the dead object, is now inside and the ego attaches to it and identifies with it. And something happens at this point. Um, the ego sort of splits and so you have on the one hand, you have um, this sort of loving attachment to part of this lost object and then you have another part that's um, full of hate against um, that object. And so there's an ambivalence, and this is one of the key features of melancholia, is this ambivalence between love and hate of the lost object, okay? And that's sort of internalized. And um, where does the hate come from? Well, one idea is that uh, the lost person has left, left you, and you're upset about it, you're angry. The hate is, why did you leave me? So that is internalized, and one part of the ego attacks the other part of the ego, okay? And so that, Morning and Melancholy of Freud's famous essay sort of was the precursor to the idea of the superego, and the superego that's gonna attack. And um, so people who have melancholia often have self-reproaches and self-attacks and will, you know, put themselves down. And um, that is that part. It's the one part of the ego attaching, attacking the other part. Okay, but really the hate that the subject feels is not against the self. The hate is against the object that left. It's just been turned inwards towards the self. So that's what Kate is referring to when she says we got to get at the anger. Okay, this is the source of the anger and it's been internalized. All right, so under all melancholia, there's an anger that you need to get at, an aggression. All right, so this was sort of Freud's idea. Peter had a suggestion for one possible source of this aggression, this movement towards a culture of melancholia. One question that's raised by all of this is, yeah. what has this got to do with the environment? Yes. <laughs> yes. And one of the things that has happened over the past while is people have been interested in mourning and melancholia because of the environmental situation that we face. Some of this is a, has a long history to it, and it's probably associated originally with the uh, arrival of the atom bomb in 1945. The idea that you could drop a bomb somewhere and you could essentially rip a hole in the fabric of time and space in a, in a particular place. You could obliterate that, that place of time and space. And, and through the Cold War, this possibility that we could obliterate everything generated various forms of mourning and melancholia in, in the political domain, but also in the activist domain, would we ever get out of this situation, and so on. If we think of our culture, then in terms of a melancholic, melancholic culture, um, we could think about, um, you know, a culture that is not willing to uh, work through a loss, okay? They're still attached to some original lost object and I think rather than working through that loss, what happens is more a manic kind of response, which is rather than um, 
looking at uh, what we have lost and loss itself. Instead, we try to replace that loss by filling it with um, consumer um, satisfactions and replacing it with, you know, new things. And so it's like if you um, felt depressed and then you want to go shopping, right. <laughs> you know, something like that. Um, but if I can go back in the story a bit, um, the, in the literary world, if I can call it that, um, the figure who's most important for thinking about melancholy is Walter Benjamin. Walter Benjamin's a German social critic of the 1920s and 30s. And what Benjamin was interested in was he argued that unlike some kinds of romanticism, which are focused on the notion of symbolic power and um, ecstatic beauty and so on, that the characteristic of the modern world was a characteristic of allegory, that uh, what we see around us is a, is a series of failed metaphors, failed symbols. Um, a good example would be the kind of utopian visions uh, consecrated that we see in superhighways that are destroying the downtowns of cities. These at one time were part of a vision of a glorious future where cars zoomed along through across beautiful highways, but that vision has died. And But what's left is this kind of fragment of this vision. And we have all of these fragments around us of things that look, that maybe at one time had some meaning, uh, utopian meaning, or even just fragments of of, uh, of objects which Benjamin connected to capitalism and commodity fetishism so that we see all around us if you go into your average grocery store you see hundreds and thousands of objects Campbell soup cans um, detergents and so on which have all kinds of signs on them beckoning you towards some perfect space or the you know a beautiful home where everybody sits drinking warm soup or whatever it might be. And each of those represents a kind of fragment, disconnected fragment of meaning, but also commodities themselves, um, because almost anything can be exchanged for anything else under capitalism. Commodities have been ripped apart from any serious reference to the outside world. They can, they're floating around. They have floating signifiers everywhere. And so Benjamin argues that allegory is the characteristic of people in the modern world who are, you know, the, the, the true artist looking at the situation around them is forced into failed metaphor, is forced into a kind of fragmentary uh, language of sort of piecing together fragments in a kind of mosaic form in order to uh, deal with, represent the situation that we find ourselves in, which is one where uh, any meaning, let us call it the presence or absence of God um, is obvious all around us. And so this Benjamin, this whole way of looking at the world, a world of fragments of ruins, of broken meaning, of, of allegory, Benjamin suggests that this is melancholy, mm. that, the, that we are um, engaged like the angel in Albrecht Dürer's painting in looking around us at a series of, of projects that are half done, series of, of world projects that are half done, and that part of the, the power of capitalism or part of the, the failure of capitalism is that it's constantly creating brand new 
um, projects that work for a couple of years and then they collapse or that we have all these commodities that are disconnected from everything else and so that we live in a kind of anxious melancholia all the time. So what Susan and Peter are saying is that our obsession with things, our manic consumption of commodities, our tendency towards commodity fetishism, if you will, is a product of our melancholy then? Yep. In our inability to deal with Benjamin's idea of a fragmented reality, or with real environmental trauma, like the atom bomb, we've turned our attention from actually dealing with the lost object into an obsession with the best new car, the coolest new technology, and the most exotic new soup. Kate described what she would call the psychic structure of commodity fetishism for us. We develop intense attachments to things, and the ideal in that model is that we then you know, once that object is gone, we then develop an intense attachment to another thing. Um, and I think that that's, um, that's kind of how uh, these sort of media campaigns around environmental destruction take place. Well, first it was this forest, and now it's this forest, and first it was this species, now it's this species. We develop these, we, we, we can develop these, the, you know, the ideal relationship of more, of, 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 using mourning as a political tool is, 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 is so that we develop these intense, uh, is so that we have a sense of intense attachment to a particular object, and when that object is gone, we reinvest in the next object. Um, so it's kind of like the, um, what in the 19th century was called the, the vanishing Indian the only way that white settler colonial relations were able to acknowledge the presence of Aboriginal peoples was um, as they were supposedly dying off. So there was a great deal of veneration of, um, you know, sort of native native customs and traditions and rituals. But that that veneration, that that uh, celebration of native culture, was done from the very secure position of white folks figuring that Aboriginal peoples were on their way out. And that their, you know, their rituals and their artifacts needed to be protected and preserved and, and valued. Um, and that if there was actually a, a conversation between white settler culture and Aboriginal cultures on the same terms, um, that kind of nostalgia, that kind of, that, that kind of sense of mourning uh, would, not have, would simply not have been possible. I think that there is, uh, in late capitalist society, um, a constant, uh, a, a large degree of nostalgia for nature, but we have very few rituals in which we actually acknowledge what it is that we've lost or are in the process of losing. Instead, we, we look at the endangered rainforest over here or the endangered species over here, um, and um get 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 very excited about saving it and then when it's gone we move on we move on to the next thing so it's it, it's kind of a form of uh of fetishism um so, um bruce bruce braun in his marvelous book the intemperate rainforest argues that ecological mourn that that this this structure of mourning is actually very much part of uh reinforcement of ecological modernity um we, we, we mourn the object. In this case, he was writing about uh, Clackwood Sound, the old growth rain, rainforest that was the, the subject of, of considerable political discontent in the early 1990s. 
um, the uh, he's writing uh, he, 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 Braun is writing about um, uh, a sort of a, an almost ritualized practice by which we go back to nature um, um, and we mourn the passing of nature we mourn the, the logging of the of the ancient rainforest um, as a way of confirming our modernity um, we we we, we Get, we get upset and we protest the, the, the loss, but we do so from the very solid position that we have already come to the point um, that we are, we, we are absolutely capable of conquering it. So we, we reinforce our ability to destroy in the same moment that we mourn the fact that we have done so. Um, but we don't really sit with that loss or understand how we might be constituted by that loss. Um, we, 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 we look at it and we take a picture of it and we put it in National Geographic and we say, isn't it sad that this culture is on its way out or that this species is on its way out? Um, but we don't understand how our own modernity, our own psychic being in the present is in fact constituted and reconstituted and reconstituted by that loss. of that species, that animal, that place in constituting us. Do you think there's a fear in acknowledging that loss? Possibly. Because, Possibly. I mean, sometimes I think about if, if we were to mourn more, that could be a really dark place. Uh, well, it would also be a very dangerous place because we would actually have to acknowledge that we've really destroyed something. And we per- we have perhaps destroyed something that can't be replaced. Um, you know, we even even in in um, what Timothy Morton would call light green, or actually calls bright green, environmental politics. There is the sense that well, we can we can find a replacement. You know, there might not be any more of this, but we can find a replacement. There's always a technology that's going to stand in for this thing. Um, and if we can simply find the right technology, perhaps it can stand in for this thing before we've destroyed all of what the original thing was in the first place, you know, fossil fuel, wind energy. Um, what would it mean to mourn the loss of the fossil fuels? Yeah. It's, it's inconceivable you know, to, to mourn the gas that we've burned. We, we, it's just absolutely impossible if we're going to continue to use it, um, it has to be replaceable. There, we cannot acknowledge that the thing simply doesn't exist anymore. The connection Kate had drawn between our inability to deal with our lost objects that are missing everywhere from our environment, the leader of gas, the hector of old-growth forest, the species of fish, and our ability to continue to use these things left us wondering where to go from here. Can we begin to look from a place of destruction towards a place of repair? 
Can we possibly rethink the way we conceive of our resources so that we might move away from an obsessive consumer culture that is focused on devouring and consumption? Susan had some thoughts on this. She suggested that the current state of Western culture, in which we are filled with ambivalence towards both ourselves and our lost objects, could be a place from which we could move forward. Our melancholic position could turn out to have a silver lining after all. This also can have a positive outcome um, when we turn to look to Melanie Klein. Um, she will come after Freud. And she believed that um, when the bad part attacks the good part, um, then the subject um, th will feel some guilt and then will want to repair the good object. And that repairing or reparation is the source of creativity. And that will become the sort of first instance of the possibility of turning loss into language. What I think, though, is certainly in recent years that um, we're moving into maybe what Melanie Klein would have called the depressive position, where we're having more concern about repairing our objects and, and storing up good. And, and I think you can think of the, the fact that we have concern now for repairing the damage we've done shows that we might actually have an awareness of the loss. So I actually think that there, we're, you know, although we may be a melancholic culture, we are also, um, there's a good suggestion we're also in this depressive position where we're now, you know, feel guilt about the repair or about the damage we have done to the good object, which is the earth in this case. Right. Um, and um, we're now thinking about um, showing concern and trying to repair it. And um, of course, what's implied there though is that you had to go through the other phases first, <laughs> which is the devouring and expelling. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, the idea of art and literature and other forms of creative expression is that that is a sort of um, creative sublimation of these impulses rather than just, you know, devouring and destroying. Um, instead, um, putting things into words and, and, and into art are a better way of dealing with, you know, <laughs> dealing with it, the problem. That guilt from having your own sort of sadism against, um, you know, your own object, or if we want to think about here, um, sadism against the land, this can um, lead to guilt, which then leads to repair. And so there's a very important role for language and art in relation to that loss. My feeling is that somewhere along the way, let's call it 2050, <laughs> or we could even call it the 22nd century. The 22nd century, if we get to the 22nd century, will probably be all about restoration ecology. We'll be trying to yeah. rebuild the world we've destroyed um, and trying to piece together the Benjaminian fragments of the natural world that we've lost. And, the, and for most people now, I think, in environment, there's a kind of rescue mentality going on which is there, yeah. there are things that we have to rescue in such a way that at some point we might be able to push back the tide of this encroaching bulldozer that we live with.
So it's from here that we want to proceed in our next episode, from this, this moment of optimism that, that Peter and Susan have left us with, this thought that, we can, that we're moving from um, an obsession with consuming to uh, a concern for repair. So in our next episode, Melancholy, Mourning, and Environmental Activism, we're going to look at ways that um, artists and um, writers and poets and activists are dealing with uh, the mess that we've got ourselves into and trying to help us to learn how to deal with the loss of all of the wonderful things around us. Coherence is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment and the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. Special thanks to Peter Timmerman, Kate Sandilands, and Susan Moore for speaking with us. Thanks to our musical contributors, Allegra Records, Pants Productions, Roses Medley, More Love, and the Cautioneers in order of appearance. You can find links to their music on our webpage. This episode was produced by Andrew Mark and Amanda DiBattista, and the fantastic sound design was done by Andrew Nolan. For details about this episode, check out our show notes at niche-canada.org backslash coherence and coherence is spelled c-o-h-e-a-r-e-n-c-e please be sure to rate us on itunes and send us feedback on the show hello 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 all right are we recording now people listening to this show are going to think that people in fes do nothing but talk about death (laughs) (laughs) that might not be such a bad thing thanks for listening